Hi, I'm Martina McBride. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories. But you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart, and this podcast is not suitable for children. But then, neither is the music business. (laughs) So light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. Well, today we are... Today we are interviewing the unbelievably talented and gifted Shane McAnally, probably the Hi. best songwriter in Nashville, maybe in the country. And, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out last night who could have had more number ones than you. And, you know, maybe Paul McCartney. But And you've had number ones in every genre. And nobody else has ever done that before, I don't think. Can you think of anybody, Evie? What I was thinking about, I know you've had 38 number ones, Shane, at least. And 41. Well, what's amazing to me is how long it takes a record to get to number one over the last few years. So I I think that that's a real remarkable thing. I think maybe Bobby Braddock and a bunch of the old-time country people had a lot of hits, but, you know, records went up the charts in a matter of months as opposed to now it seems like a matter of years. So forty well, one is of the probably things, sixty. <laughs> well, one of the things though, on the on the other side of that, to is that you know a lot like Bobby Braddock and some of the and even Craig Wiseman who who had uh, he's had over twenty number ones, which it, it seems like oh that's half the number of someone like myself. But the truth is, right, that was at a time when songs, even if you had a top five, it was a legitimate hit. Nashville has turned into this ring the bell of number one. And it's really, a lot of them are manufactured. They're not legitimate number ones. Now, I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from what I've done. I, it is remarkable and I'm, I'm very proud of it. But, you know, it used to be that it wasn't about the number one. And so people, you know, records that even, even a decade ago, some of my biggest hits, uh, like Merry Go Round by Casey Musgraves, probably the most important song in, in my catalog. It was a number nine song, but what, I wouldn't trade it, obviously, for any of those number ones. It, you know, it went on to win a Grammy and multiple awards. But the, but the point is that now we've gotten into this, this thing where the promotion staffs, they're all like, we have to get the song to number one. We have to ring the bell. And I think a lot of forgettable songs are, are number one records. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's jacked those numbers up for some writers of this generation, but it certainly isn't, it, it, it doesn't compare to some of those songs. Like, I mean, you know, Bobby Braddock wrote songs that are truly American songbook classics. And uh, of my, 40 plus number ones um, you know maybe I have three of those and that and that's a huge that's a huge career um, but you know it's funny that th- this this day and age we've just gotten to this how many number ones have you had and and uh, it, it 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 is I think it's a little it, it takes away it diminishes from the those writers in the past that I mean, whose career was bigger than Craig Wiseman? I mean, I certainly can't, you know, look at the length of time and the number of number ones that the man still has. Whose career was bigger than Irving Berlin? 
And how many yeah, number exactly. ones did he have? You know, I mean, these guys had songs that lasted forever. It, it's a different thing now. It's it's all about greed. It's all about money. And it I don't think it has that much to do with the art. No, I mean, I definitely do it for money, but I don't know uh, about <laughs> other people. <laughs> well, they used to say a top five record play, pay, uh, paid the same as a number one record. Is that still true? Well, it can because, you know, now these um, these um, charts, like Susan was saying, songs take a year to get there. And so if you're if you're 55 weeks on the chart, it really doesn't matter if you're number five or number one. I mean, there's some That's bonuses true. and stuff in the PROs, but I don't really think they come into play now. So so this length of time for songs is, I think it's, it is good for your working songwriter because you really can make a lot of money off these songs that last a year. I think in building a career, it's kind of a tragedy because artists make these records and then, you know, they have a song that after after actually pre-promotion and then getting all the way, it takes almost two years and then they want to p- put out another record. So nobody really knows who these artists are. They just know the songs. It's just a different yeah. time. And just one song, you know, as opposed to an album where you really get to know, you know, a whole different sides of an artist. Exactly. But talking about artists, remember when you yeah. were an artist, Shane, and on Curb in the late 90s, I guess. Yeah, well, the joke is... That's what I found out about you. Really? You remember that? I was a big fan of yours. I remember that time, too. Absolutely. Well, Susan, it might have just been you and my mom. I think that it's really helped you. as I think as a writer, it's really helped you. You have such empathy for people. I mean, I've watched you at big events and stuff and how you interact with people, and they all leave saying, God, what a nice guy. You know, I just felt like he understood me. And I think that that obviously is part of your success as a writer and the way you deal with people. I, I Thanks for that. I do think that the empathetic artist heart of knowing what it takes for these folks and, I, you know, I wouldn't wish what these artists have to do on anybody. And, and, it, and it wasn't that different when I was doing it. I mean, the beginnings of an artist's career and the... Oh gosh, some of these things that you know, you just it it's really it's it's just it's demeaning. And uh, at times you just You suffered a lot as an artist on curb. I just had a lot of attachment to at that time being famous and that yeah. was the wrong reason. And so I was constantly disappointed that things weren't going my way because in my mind before I really sort of broke open and started writing songs that were my truth and from my heart. That took me years. And I will say this, I I meet a lot of young writers now and a lot of young artists that really blow my mind how well they know themselves, Um, the lives they've already lived. I, I really am sometimes just, I mean, examples would be like, and I know we'll probably get into this, but you know, when I met Casey Musgraves, um, almost, uh, I guess nine, nine years ago now, you know, she was what, 22. And she, you know, the first time I sat down with her, I I was so enamored with her and in awe of her just sense of self. Um, and I just thought, God, how, how can you, if I had known myself that well at that age, if I had been that sort of steadfast in my beliefs and, and been able to not, you know, when I was that age and I was making records or, or making a record on Curb Records, 
I was in the closet. I was terrified that anybody would think that I was anything other than the, the guys on the radio. I was just chasing what was on the radio. And so there wasn't, I didn't have a lane. I didn't have, you know, I was just sort of writing what I thought would be a hit. And that didn't mean I didn't love it, but I just, I hadn't lived enough yet and I didn't know myself well enough yet. And there was just an inauthenticity about it that I think ultimately makes a lot of sense as to why people didn't buy in. Now, I was also on Curb Records and there's a joke that I still am on Curb Records. So I guess I could make another one. You're one of the few that's ever gotten off. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what that says about me. I remember when uh, Jason, years ago, played Casey for me. He said, I think I found an artist that, you know, a lot of people want a manager, but I think she's going to go with me. And she's so unbelievable. We were at Nashville and he took me out to his car and he played me. What was the first song, Shane? The first song that we took around was about Step Off. And um, we also had Merry Go Round. But I don't Merry know if we, Go I Round. Don't think we had, yeah, it was like when we first, we did a demo of Merry Go Round right around the time that she was signing with Jason. It was Merry Go Round. And he played it for me. And I was just in shock because nobody had anything like that. And Casey's the example of somebody that has a huge following that can pack the Apollo Theater and has never had a number one record and is probably proud of it. That's not her that's not her milieu is, you know, hits. Her milieu no. is touching people. And, you know, the first time I heard her, I couldn't believe how great she was and sensitive and she was so sensitive and nobody was making songs like that. I mean, you know, Patty Loveless and Laurie and all of them were singing good songs, but none of them were sensitive, introspective songs. And hers were, and people related to that. I think it was because she's a real writer. Um, I think what resonated, you know, she's a writer first and like Dolly and, and, uh, and like Willie. And I think that that is what, that what sort of connects the dots of that warmth. Now, you know, growing up listening to Lori and and growing up and listening to Patty Loveless, I will say uh, objectively when I wasn't in the world uh, in the middle of all of this stuff in country music, I um I felt that connection from them. I didn't know that they didn't write their songs and I didn't care. I mean, I think that when I heard You Don't Even Know Who I Am by Patty Loveless or out of Your Shoes by Lori. I mean, I... Yeah, that it, you was know, a great song. I was just sort of... I love... There's a vulnerability in a song like Out of Your Shoes. Even if she didn't write it, there's a vulnerability in being... in being. That was sort of... You know, when you listen to the lyrics of Out of Your Shoes, it's it was the original Girl Crush. It was, it was. saying, I wish I could be doing what you're doing, talking to another female. And... You know, that says a lot considering how groundbreaking Girl Crush was and how it sort of took over the world. That the that thought was in Out of Your Shoes all those years ago. Well, I think that a lot of those, you know, second or third generation country female artists, not necessarily Dolly or Tammy, you know, our favorite, who I think had unbelievable songs and also wrote them, you know, uh the ones like uh, Laurie and Patty and stuff, they had songs that touched on those issues. But, you know, radio was so controlling of what went on the air 
that they had yeah. to be really careful of what they released. I mean, before, you know, they before Laurie could release a song, the whole promotion staff and Joe and everybody had to agree on it. And it well, was that's a the different same now. thing. I mean, but I mean, the girls Is now... It? The the best songs on on a well, you can put anything out at streaming you want and hope that the fans gravitate towards it and hope that they dictate what the single is. But I mean the the amount of opinions that go into choosing these singles, and then you add it being a female on top of it. Yeah. I mean the number of things that I hear back from from people like oh they they can't it can't be a man bashing song, but that makes no sense because the biggest songs of the past few years. Are, are quote man bashing songs and you even go back right. to Shania I mean that that's that it's it's not a negative thing it's funny it's fun and the then it's you real. can't be it's vulnerable so real. yeah it's like you know even when I wrote uh last call and and Leanne Womack that was my first cut uh on a major that artist that was my and, favorite one of my favorite songs of hers god what a great song that was Jane I mean, I well, could that just one is wax on. Let me just tell a story about that song. <clears throat> when we were at Bandit Records, every morning when uh, Michael Campbell and Susan and I would get in, Michael and Susan would go into Michael's office and blast Last Call about seven times, mm. first thing in the morning, and then out sing Leanne. So all I could ever hear That's was Susan right. and Michael singing at the top of their lungs, Last Call, first thing in the morning. Then after lunch, we would come back to the office and we'd have to go through it again. Another four or five listens that, you know, where the walls are shaking of Last Call with Michael and Susan on the lead. Well, uh, I, I wish that, that I could have heard that. I really, well, I really you know, would like that. Well, you know, that song was such a heart wrencher. And Leanne is such an unbelievable singer. You know, she's I think, ju- and that's, I think she's the best. I think she's the best. I, you know, and I, I, I'm sure people I agree. would because because it's of because it, because she's still singing and still in it. I think some people a lot of times don't recognize someone's true uh, iconicness until later. But I mean, I put her up there with George Jones. I put her up there with Patsy Cline. I think she is. I think she's the greatest country voice. I, I, I just, I, I just too. think she, she's connected to something in her soul that. When she sings, even the simplest of lines, it just breaks my heart. And so, it, you know, the she has a poignancy in her voice. Well, it's just so much truth. And the, and the fact is, what, you know, what brought that up was talking about Last Call. It was um, it was so vulnerable to say. And that, look, they would have said it in the seventies. They would have said it in the eighties. But but now, even in the last ten years, for a woman to say. I'm waiting to hear from you and you're sitting at a bar. You know, right. people are like, Oh, I don't I don't want to hear a woman in that point of view. It's it's too vulnerable. It's not you know, and the truth is it doesn't matter if it was a man or a woman in that situation. It's a real situation. I mean, people live like that. And the fact that she did that song was telling. You know, when they stopped singing about drinking and and fooling around and you know people being unfaithful when they stopped doing that and they tried to use euphemisms is when country music lost it for me you know they don't talk about women drinking or anything anymore i know i i i agree 
it's it's um it the you know it's it's still it, it is it is like we're trying to create this this um narrative that's that's just not true i mean it it's like we we're built on true stories families still struggle with these things there is still addiction and still cheating and look i'm not saying it has to all be sad and downtrodden i mean some of the greatest songs you know about about men being assholes or women being assholes i mean that's the thing is it's uh it doesn't have to just be a, a man doing a woman wrong and um i some of my favorite songs are when men play that vulnerable role i mean to be honest with you that was a big turning point for me is that some folks like Jake Owen and of course especially Kenny Chesney uh they recorded some songs of mine that sort of put the woman in a in a powerful role and a villain role basically where where the they were waiting around for the woman and um you know a lot of people said people, men wouldn't record those songs i was told that time after time after time in the early 2010s uh that men won't sing about that and guess what those guys did and they really opened the door for me when did kenny cut somewhere with you it was in 2000 Nine when he cut it, and it it was a hit in 2010. So it's been 10 years, and that was my f- first number one. That was the wow. best he ever sounded. And then also, Come Over. You know, those songs put Kenny into that vulnerable position, and I happen to be a huge Kenny fan. But when he sang those songs, you heard a different side of him. You can tell the... the what what I think he, it was time for him to do those kind of songs. You know, maybe before that it wouldn't have felt believable on him but he really felt him i mean and still if you see him sing somewhere with you live you know because he likes to keep his shows up and that song when in in the show it's a showstopper i mean it 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 really his fans recognize that there is something in that song that he connects with um you know on another level and that and that really him sort of buying into that sort of vulnerability. I mean, we've had seven number ones together and and it is because he he trusted that. And and that's hard when someone's had the career that he's had to go, I need to sort of open this up over here and like show people another side. And and uh I just feel like that was the biggest blessing for me as a songwriter that I may not be his Dean Dillon like George Strait and have forty cuts with him but I, I a piece of his legacy a time when he needed to turn a corner and make a change it was he looked at to me and 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 it really it it opened the door for me in a million ways I, I think Kenny's more responsible for for my career probably than anyone when it comes to people trusting that because a lot of other guys saw Kenny doing it and said it was okay Shane, did you did you cut your own songs when you were on Curb, or did you cut out? Some I did. Songs? Yeah, I cut my own songs, and uh, you know, it was just I had only been in town a few years, and and was writing with uh, like uh, Kent Blazy and Blair Daly, and a bunch of guys that are still writing hits now. And Rich Herring was a guy that I wrote a lot with, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I was still kind of learning. I mean, I had been writing songs for a long time, but it takes years to really start settling in. And I was really just, like I said before, emulating what was on the radio. And, and I, and I believe now that if you're doing that, if you're chasing what's on the radio, you're too late. 
because yeah. it's I already agree. on the radio. It's two years too late. But you, you know yeah. what I was going to say when you talked about Kenny finally doing that? You know, for years, George Jones had all those up-tempo songs, uh, all the up-tempo songs. But when George really broke through is when he had He Stopped Loving Her Today. And, yeah, you know, all those that years was later, right? Yes, yeah, that that's what I mean. Much later. It, it, but, I mean, he it put him in that vulnerable position that he had, I think, that he had not been in much before. I mean, you know, the Grand Tour and all those songs talked about a man loving a woman and, you know, n- not working out. But he stopped loving her today, you know, kind of like was Georgia somewhere with you. Well, I mean, that's, I think that's a big, very nice comparison. But, I mean, he, he stopped loving her today. What, you know, when you look at the story of that song, and maybe some of them have, have, turned into legends maybe they've grown but but the story that i've heard is that and you guys can maybe fill in some of these blanks but it w- was that he 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 was actually sort of hitting a bit of a wall i mean he had you know he had hits and hits and hits but then there was sort of a downtime he found that song of course no one would think that a song about uh, someone dying is going to be a huge hit and it in in a time when we didn't have the streaming world to to throw things out there and see how people reacted what happened was people just reacted i mean and and i thought maybe he didn't love the song at first i think uh i thought yeah it took him over a year to record the song because he felt you know the recitation wasn't in it originally and uh he kept thinking that something was missing in the song and Bobby Braddock, you know, they eventually wrote the missing like link as far as George was concerned. But during that period, he was really drinking heavily and having real, you know, problems even singing. And it took him a long time to cut that song. I mean, many, many, many takes. And, um, you know, he never thought it would be a hit. He thought it was too morbid. And I guess, you know, Proved he, he was proven wrong because it won all kinds of awards and obviously is one of the great standards of country music. I think it's probably the most important song. Excuse I me? think so too. I, th- I said I think it's probably the most important song. I mean, you see uh, in country music, I mean, you see the lists over and over and over. I mean, that song defied all odds. I mean, even the production and talking about Billy Sherrill, I mean, that weird voice that sounds like a ghost singing. Yeah. It's just all of it is is like, what, what, you know, like it all is this perfectly, it's so crazy, but it works. And, and I, but I listen to songs and study things like that and think, what the hell were they thinking in the studio having that girl sing like a ghost? It it seems so strange, but Michael it's so and I cool. can do that song too. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear that one. Is everybody so, still there? They... Yeah, we're all still here. I was <laughs> sipping coffee. Excuse me. Maybe my singing I'll... blew everybody out. <laughs> Susan, you are. But it's too... you know it's true when you you talked about you know uh, Shane about you know songs being you know such touchstones throughout people's lives and thinking about your list of songs god i mean i could drive all the way to florida and listen to just all of your songs when i look at them i hadn't realized that you wrote um 
Better Dig 2 for the band Perry. I really love that song. And Sam Hunt's Body Like a Backward. You know, I, I was aware of a lot of your songs, but then I was shocked at all the other songs that I didn't know about. Um, you know, it's Evelyn, what has been has been a very, uh, like a, a blessing for my career is that people have taken some strange chances on some songs of mine. You know, there are big songwriters in Nashville that have had tons and tons of hits that that write great, strange, quirky songs, but artists don't want that from them. You know, I'm thinking I'll, I'll, I'll name someone by name, Ashley Gorley, who has had more hits than me. And and he uh, he he's an incredible songwriter. Uh, well, he's had he he writes he has incredible depth, but his songs that that get recorded are a lot more mainstream. And and uh, I've been very lucky that, like you mentioned, the band Perry, the, that Better Dig 2, and and some of these songs that, well, Somewhere With You, uh, you know, Kenny yeah. really set that tone for me. People recorded songs of mine that are more um, songwritery that would normally sit on a shelf for a songwriter. I've been very exactly. lucky because my because I, I got to be a part of some songs that actually had commercial success that, that, that were really big risks. You know, we were talking earlier about, about all, the, all the conversations that are had before a song is a single. And I just feel like I, a lot of dominoes fell my way in some of those conversations because I think people took some chances on my songs. I will say this, it happens less now. And I, I, I do even think five or six years ago, they took a lot more chances. I think that really, as I, mean, I that's see this, shocking this, to me. Not yeah, to I me just think because there's there's less opportunities for people now. Well, I would think that there's more opportunities. Well, you think about a song like "The House That Built Me." Like, if you think about the song "The House That Built Me," that song. Who would think that like a song like that would ever not be the biggest song in the world? Um, it's it's a perfectly written song. I think it is one of the best songs of all time, and it's I just agree. an acoustic guitar. It's just an acoustic guitar and Miranda. And I'm just telling you, there. It doesn't matter how good the song is now. They just they can't play production like that. There is, you do not hear that on country radio. You do not hear a, a, a singer and a guitar. You won't. And um, in that is what I'm talking about, the chances. But but the but the fact is in country we've gotten so watered down from testing. And you know it it all comes from I agree. It is fear. It, it is fear because there is so much changing at radio and things. But I do think a lot of these songs that broke the mold that people say, oh, we need another one of those. We need another house that built me. We need even Cam burning house from two years ago. I mean, I think if she had that song now, I don't know if they would play it. I mean, that song broke through and that wasn't, that was probably longer than two years ago. It was, but, you know, it was like four that, years ago. It's gotten so production heavy and dependent. And um, I'm not trying to be like a downer about it. It's just is the trend. But I just, I wish that we would recognize that those songs that break the mold are what really define uh, country music specifically as a genre through the years. If you look at those benchmarks, Girl Crush, those songs that jumped out in the last decade, um, they were all very, very simple. It's always the unusual yeah. songs, the songs that kind of touch your heart and 
those are the songs that that for whatever reason the record business is so afraid of in the radio business That's right. and yet th- when they do break through those are the songs that people always remember i mean you know unfortunately there's just way too many hits nowadays that i have no idea what the hell they're about or or you know i, I don't understand why they're hits quite often uh, but one every once in a while, and in a lot of your songs, they come along and they just sort of smack you in the face, and you think, "My God, how refreshing to hear something real." That's why he called it smack songs. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> hey, that's good though. I like that. Uh, but that's well, another that's true. thing about Shane, I should say, is that he's also the uh, head of Monument Records, which is our label. I kind of thought that maybe there was more opportunity for, you know, less mainstream artists in this world of streaming and that there's other ways to get, you know, huge hits without people even kind of realizing it that might listen to country radio. I mean, who is listening to radio? Aren't they finding their music in other ways nowadays? They are, but 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 it's happening, it's taking longer in the world of country, we are a traditional format in that, you know, that people still like to listen to the radio. I like to listen to the radio personally. I do but, too. But I will say, you, you're right, Evelyn. There are opportunities for people to have hits uh, and sort of have these outliers that that create their own story through um, streaming. It has happened a couple of times in country already with uh, Luke Combs, uh, and even though Luke Combs is obviously having radio success, it, it started with this sort of rumble in streaming. And uh, Kane Brown is, is one that, that Kane his Brown, streaming yeah, numbers, like it's sort, of, it sort of demanded radio play. In pop music, this happens all the time. There are so many pop stars that aren't on the radio. Um, and that's just because there's more people streaming in the pop world. And, and ultimately... Uh, I think country will there will be more listeners that that stream. I hope that that doesn't take away from radio numbers, but I think just because of the convenience and just because of the the just sheer finding new music. But what but what's happening right now in country music is that because of people like my age that I'm 46 and people my age are still holding on to the radio side of things and not wanting to move to streaming and um so there's so what happens is a, a lot of people my age just listen to songs in their itunes that they already had their library um so you well, find that that that's sort of the the music discovery thing hasn't quite hit country the way it has pop i agree and then you have a listener like me who still listens to everything on cds and still buys cds so i'm yeah, you know and, and, I, I, I still I miss like that. listening I mean, I, to I, I, CDs. Well, me too. I, like I mean, to and I like the to, to repeat a song and it. go and listen to the next song. And I know, and hold it in your hand. I mean, that's the thing. Is yeah. I just I I have a record player. I know that that's not unusual for people these days, but I just went to the record store uh, down here in Florida and I just bought all these records. They didn't have a lot of country, but I pretty much bought everything they had. And um, where did what? Just, where was it? It was in Seaside, uh, and it's a little record store that's up on the second floor of this place, and um, and they had a lot of Crystal Gale, and I bought every Crystal Gale record that I already had in in some place. I have these records somewhere, but I just wanted to look at them again and 
read the songwriters' names and see the liner notes and hold the record in my hand and smell it. And um, it's it's the just covers, so nostalgic. Looking at the covers. Yeah, I like exactly. to look at the it's, covers and see the artists and how they looked. I know. Me too. Me too. And then you became a producer and songwriting pro on uh, Songland on NBC. What do you think of all these uh, TV shows that sort of put a spotlight on music? I'm assuming you think it's a great thing. Well, I don't. I don't love the singing contests, most, mostly because we've seen them so much. Uh, you know, I, I I was a big American Idol fan when when it first came out. Um, I loved those first few seasons. I was hardcore Kelly Clarkson. And it was because I hadn't seen it like that before. And Me we were too. really choosing superstars. I just think that it got watered down and and there were so many of them and, and the and the just the commerce of that that people were like, Oh, let's all do it. And I think the voice has changed the game because it is entertainment. You're you're watching for those judges more than for the singers. And I love the comedy and I love the interaction of the judges with the singers. What what appealed to me about Songland is that it was about songwriting and it's still tough to completely show people what it is we do. But I did like that they were shining a spotlight on something that wasn't a lot of people just don't get it. I mean, a lot of people are just they just assume that the songs are all written by the people singing them. And I think this newfound sort of fascination with songwriters, I, I actually really appreciate that. A lot of songwriters, they do it because they like being behind the scenes and they like telling their stories. But a lot of us miss a performance aspect of it. I, I didn't I didn't come to Nashville to just write songs for other people. I came to write them for me. And although that didn't quite pan out the way I'd hoped what I found in doing something like Songland and even going and playing songwriter shows, I found that performer that I had missed, that uh, I really like interacting with people, whether it be on camera or in a, in a crowd, that really feeds me. And so the fact that I was able to build a catalog and write songs that made me credible enough to do a show like that was a blessing. But doing the show itself has been just one of the greatest gifts of my life. I Mostly just because I get to go on there and laugh and cry and and have these songs tell more of a story than just what you hear uh, on the radio, you know? You know what the biggest thrill for me in Songland was? Was seeing them write the song that Martina sang because she sounded so great and that song was so perfect for her. It was the best I, I heard her sound in a year. She sounded fantastic, and she, when she went into the studio and cut it, she really had a lot of fun. She had a lot of fun on the show. Uh, yeah, I loved she did. sitting with her. We, you know, and and right now, I mean, we have a hit with this Lady Annabellum song that came from the show is uh, about to be top ten, and uh, you know, of course, like we said before, country radio takes a long time, so the show aired what seven or eight months ago, but now the song is just now entering the top 10 at country radio and it's a big hit and it's called champagne You're nights. Kidding. How fun is it that it, yeah. And they found it on Songland, So it's really fun that we're seeing the real fruits of that labor, that it's not just, Oh, they wrote a song on TV. We're never going to hear from it. That was the first time we actually had a song from Songland go to radio. And so it's been, it's been very cool. Well, and it's nice to see that happen, you know, because the weird thing on the voice uh, is that there are so many good contestants 
But when it comes down to the end, it's never really, you know, the great people that win. And nobody has come out of that show yet to be a star that I, I've, you know, run into. But again, I think I think we're just more enamored with the, that cast of judges and their interaction uh, that's why I watch that show. I mean, and and look, I've been a part of the. Well, I miss Adam Levine. Well, I like that they change it up. I do like, I do love the the, the camaraderie and and also sort of the competition. What is hard, and I can't imagine this. The part that I'm so grateful for on Songland, is that, my involvement or Ryan Tedder or Esther Dean, our involvement is not influencing who wins that would be such a pressure to me if i was kelly clarkson trying to get votes for one of my artists i would feel so much pressure that i needed to be popular and so i really that part of it would make me so nervous so i i really am glad songland doesn't have that component because i don't think my nerves could take it i would i would just want them to win so bad i love the uh duet you wrote for uh blake and uh gwen oh thanks thank you that you know they're they are really. Um, I, I wrote. I wrote with Gwen uh, last year, and I, I know Blake from being in town and things, but I, we weren't close. And and Gwen just, she just stole my heart. She was such a sweet person, but when she talked about Blake, it was like she is just. They are so in love, and you they know are. I don't know why that just that really just rang with me. It 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 was like. It was so cool to know that it wasn't just manufactured or that they hadn't just, you know, propped it up for television. And uh, seeing her talk about him really inspired me. And then I went back with uh, Ross Copperman and Josh Osborne and I was telling them, I was just like, I mean, these two people are no joke. They are just all in. And we we wrote the song sort of in Blake's voice, Nobody But You. And, and uh, we didn't know that, that ultimately she would sing on it. But but what was cool is that I was actually on The Voice doing promotion for Songland. And um, they were in commercial break and Blake came over to say hello to me. It was very nice. And uh, I said, uh, there's a song that uh, I wrote for y'all and I, the label has heard it and supposedly it's on hold for you, but I don't know if you've heard it. And he said, what's it called? And I said, nobody but you. And he goes, oh, I haven't heard it. And then they started pulling him back to his seat because the countdown, like we're going back from commercial. And he turns around and he goes, send it to me. And I said, Blake, I don't have your number. I was like so nervous. And he goes, oh, uh, well, do you have Gwen's? And I said, yeah. And he goes, we'll send it to her. So I very sheepishly sent Gwen Stefani a text that said, I promise Blake told me to send you this for him. And I sent the song and then they recorded it. It was just like, you know, that never happens, but it was this No, that's a great story. story. I love the song. Thank you. I love all your songs. I'm just one of those fans, you know, a stalking fan. I just love your music. Well, I love, I love y'all. I mean, this, uh, this is so getting to talk to you guys i've looked forward to this i listen to all of your stuff and just oh god i mean you guys are just the, my favorite thing that you guys did was the um the cma wrap up last year oh yeah um it i have listened to it three times it makes me laugh so hard and also just 
it's not all funny. I mean, there's also real commentary in the fact that you guys really know this stuff. That's what I love is that you have all these relationships and you can t- connect all these dots. And when y'all were talking about the opening number and and who was in it and who wasn't, and you know, really, you were just speaking for all of us. It was like, this is... The year of the woman. I remember that whole uh, thing. Oh, this is the year of the woman. Really? Huh? Uh, I mean, you know, look, we all, if you love the CMAs and the ACMs and uh, I'm obsessed with country music i've been watching these shows my whole life and and uh I, you know there's always always have way more complaining than complimenting when then they're over because i just want them to put on there who i want them to put on there well and truthfully for so many for so many years the cmas just you know kind of played to the same audience and the same people and it's hard, you know, when, when they move on and start, you know, showcasing different artists. And if you're, you know, part of the old uh, regime, it's like, oh, no, the show's not good anymore. But, you know, every generation says that. So you just have to That's adapt right. to the moment. Maybe you should try to host it next year. What do you have to lose? Yeah, you know, I mean, if I they mean, don't I... have a vaccine, it's still going to be one of these virtual shows. Well, the next time you run into Robert Deaton, just switch it from Vince to me. <laughs> she <right>. will. <laughs> See if that I works. Know she will. She put in I, a call right away. <laughs> right? I know when he sees me, he gets agina because he knows I'm going to start <laughs> talking about Vince and how funny Jerry House. Can you was. imagine if you were if you were Robert Deaton? in Nashville at all. I mean, it, you probably can't run into anybody because you can imagine every manager, every artist, every agent, every person sees you as like, uh, what about this person? What about this? So I, I can only imagine that would be a very tough job uh, to, try to, to try to organize all that and to make decisions based on what the audience wants. That's the hardest thing is that Nashville, you know, us as an industry, we have a very different idea of what we are compared to what, the bigger picture is in trying to grow the format and get more people to pay attention. Like Evelyn was saying, I mean, you have to, we have to show things that maybe in Nashville aren't such a popular idea, but are help growing the number of eyes and ears on the music. And um, that's really been a tough thing for me as a traditionalist that I I want to respect that because I want the music to go on, but shit, I just want Barbara Mandrell on there. Come on people. We really want to thank you, Shane, for giving us so much time. I'm sure you probably lost like about a half a million dollars talking to us instead of (laughs) writing a good song. But but if you use any of our words of wisdom, we would be happy to be one of the co-writers on that song. So, you know, don't hesitate to use it. Okay, I'm going to do it. I know you guys are basically y'all talking songs, so... Uh, absolutely. I love you guys. Listen, Thank y'all for having me. Listen, we love you, Shane. Thank you so much. Thank we'll you, Shane. talk soon, okay? Bye-bye. 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 You don't know how soon. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You be sure to subscribe, and we'll be sure to catch you off guard. So light one up and lighten up. Share and tell your friends. Then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a, uh, you know, word of mouth thing because we're putting our faith in your hands. We are. 
For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Joel Beaver. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Schaefers. He is also our engineer and editor.